Welcome back to the Present Stage Conversations with Theatre Writers. My name is Dan Rubens, and I'm a theatre critic, a composer, and an arts nonprofit leader. And I am overwhelmed and over the moon and overjoyed to bring you this episode, a conversation with Heather Christian, who is the composer and librettist of Turcha, a practical breviary, a piece that is running through the Prototype Festival, uh, produced by Here at the Space at Irondale in Brooklyn through February 4th. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with Heather Christian's work, uh, time to become familiar with it. Uh, She is the composer and librettist of Oratorio for Living Things, a piece that ran through Ars Nova in 2022 and just blew the minds of everyone who experienced it. And I was just so excited to get to talk to someone whose work I have thought about and lived within uh, so deeply uh, for a while and it was really cool to just to get to chat with her about this piece uh, and how she conceives of her artistry more broadly. So I hope you enjoy listening to this interview uh, and I really had a wonderful time conducting it. So without further ado, here's Heather Christian. Heather Christian, welcome to the present stage. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, it's such a thrill to be here and I want to start by I've decided I'm a big fan of telling artists how much they mean to me. Sort of want to normalize gushing, I guess. Um, so I did want to start by reading you some text messages that I sent after I saw Oratorio for Living oh Things God. in 2022, <laughs> um, just to sort of bring receipts. Um, so on April 21st, 2022, uh, I texted my friend, do you want to see Oratorio for Living Things tonight? It's supposed to be the greatest thing of all time. And then after I saw it, I texted another friend, okay, so indeed, Oratorio for Living Things is the greatest work ever created. Then a week later, I texted my friend who was getting married that summer and said, I'm taking you to Oratorio for Living Things at some point as your bachelor party. (laughs) Then in May 2022, another friend told me, I just like searched Oratorio for Living Things in my text to see you. My friend told me he was getting his parents' music man tickets for their anniversary, and I responded, if you really loved your parents, you'd get them into oratorio. Oh my God, things. I'm leaving my body. <laughs> um, yep. And then the last thing I was going to read was in December, 2022, I texted my friend that I had gone with um, and I said, what a dastardly thing for a piece of theater to do. It will never wash off. And he responded, indescribable what we experienced. And I said, I will travel anywhere to see again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel very lucky that a lot of my friends are choral artists and composers. So I've as I did with Oratorio for Living Things in 2022, I've also been telling everyone to see Terse a Practical, did you say breviary or? Breviary, breviary? yeah. Breviary. Um, Terse a Practical Breviary, um, yeah. which is similarly so deeply resonant. Um, I haven't get gone to travel anywhere to see Oratorio for Living Things again, but I did go over the summer to see your reading of um, Wrinkle in Time in Poughkeepsie, which was really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I, as a starting question, sort of who is your Heather Christian that you would, <laughs> whose work has not yet washed off and who you would travel anywhere uh, to see their work? Oh my gosh, what a good question. I don't know that I have one. Although like I, I will say uh, any any work of Pina Bausch's, I'm, I buy tickets to immediately. Um, you know, I, I realize that's probably, I, I know she's, been gone she's not been with us for a long time but um dance really does it for me 
Um, there's no like real like composers or like theater. I think it's because I work in like I I'm writing music and I'm making theater, so it's I don't know. I, it's rare that I can go to a music performance or a theatrical performance and not feel like I'm at work. But I go to see a dance performance and I'm like transported. Can you talk more about so when you say like feel that you're at work hearing music is that because you're sort of feel that you're evaluating it in a a little bit yeah head? a little bit either it's either it's one of two things it's like oh I would have done that differently oh I would have I think maybe that needs a little editing which I can't turn off it's such a bitchy thing and like I just cannot turn it off she's a triple Virgo it's hard to manage <laughs> um or it's like oh I'll never be that good and there's nothing in between <laughs> um yeah I mean I think as a composer myself I think hearing your work it's sort of so I mean I, I guess there is a I'll never be that good but also a <laughs> sense of a sense of like well that's something that I would never have thought to do yeah, or yeah. or that's not the way that I necessarily would express myself musically or textually um but it reaches something that I want to have reached even if it's not something that I necessarily want to uh sort of copy yeah <laughs> sort of totally note, note for note yeah, um yeah. sort of like the experience conjured by it I guess um which actually transitions well into the next thing I'd written down <laughs> which is a line from Terse um that really resonated with me. I have no artistic restraint. Everything I see, I paint with the image of myself. Um, so I want to ask you about that. And is that, is not having artistic restraint, assuming that's autobiographical to, to your own experience? Well, it's both. It's both. Yeah. I mean, I, right, like we, it's impossible not to put yourself in a thing, especially when you're making something so earnest. I feel like I have to like tip my hat a little bit and in and, and any score to be like, there is a real person behind this who really cares about these things and who is really trying. Um, so yeah, that's a true statement. I do have no artistic restraint. Everything I see, I do <laughs> the image of myself. I am the vine, but it's from that passage um, in the Bible, this idea of I am the vine that I was trying to twist, um, uh, which is, I think it's just a different way to look at humanity that we are, you know, yes, we are incredibly um, versatile, uh, productive. Um, we, we grow wildly. We have expanded overnight like weeds, but also we're an invasive species and we're taking over and stealing all the sunlight and all the nutrients and all the resources on the planet. Um, and we feel like that's cool because everything that we see, we see through a lens of ourselves. And that's just how humanity is programmed. So it, it's both things. <laughs> I feel like if you're looking at it in the macro, um, I feel like it's applicable to civilization. But like, yeah, for real, it's also uh, cheekily. Yes, that is. I, I am guilty. I am wicked guilty. Um, that's really interesting. And I hadn't sort of thought about it in that that bigger way which does sort of make sense and also interesting to think about sort of the parallels between like an artist growing their world and a civilization sort of <laughs> growing their world i'm for in your own sense of artistic non-restraint do you think of that as a blessing or a burden sort of responding Oh, to everything you see yeah. artistically it depends on the day um depends on which day you ask me i like 
yesterday, we, we had a really great show last night. And I, when I got back on the train, um, cause I don't live in the city. I live in Beacon. So I, I get on the 947 Metro North every night and travel two and a half hours to come back home after every show. <laughs> so I have a long time oh to like think with, think about and like sit with what just happened. Um, and sometimes, uh, and sometimes I'm, that's difficult. Um, last night we had a, we had a really good show and the audience was incredibly supportive. And all I could think was like, I'm so lucky to feel like I am doing exactly what I was put on the planet to do. Like I, that's probably rare, right? Like, I, I don't think everybody, I certainly don't feel like that all the time, but I, I feel like everybody should at least have one shot at feeling like that. Cause it's amazing. But then, yeah, there are days where it's like, I can't, um, you know, see, see, see the world around me for, because my, my, you know, I can only see my own hand in front of my own face. Um, I'm so up the ass in my own perspective. Um, and I think that's, you know, part of it. And all artists are artists because of either formative trauma or because of like an unquellable passion for something or like a hunger or a void or something like you wouldn't keep doing this incredibly hard thing and living this hard life <clears throat> if that wasn't the case. So there are days where I'm like confronted with that and that feels um, sucky. And sometimes I wish I could just be a person who like can go to a bar and eat a hamburger and watch a football game, but um, <laughs> not that way, <laughs> but I'm married to that person. So that's great. I can live vicariously through <laughs> Um, since, since you mentioned that moment of feeling like I'm doing the thing that I was put on this earth to do, I, I had a question later on. I want to ask you about bliss as a concept, which comes up both in terse and in oratory for living things in the text. There's text I really love in, in terse. I grasp it only for a moment. And in bliss, I understand how everything is all at once in clarity and grace. And then I lose it. Um, and then an oratory for living things in your movement carbon uh mm -hmm. which has this incredible passage where the chorus is lifting the amount of time that you spend doing various yeah. both mundane and extraordinary things in the course of a lifetime which my friend and i who i saw it with sort of quote to each other all the time like we're like 37 seconds brushing oh your teeth with, with the wrong toothbrush or whatever yeah. um but it's uh, in included in that is 13 seconds of true bliss um, so I'm wondering to sort of connect those two quotes, um, do you, is, is the way that you think about bliss across those texts sort of that idea of, uh, recognizing, uh, sort of the totality of everything or it was just how everything is all at once in clarity and grace which kind of sounds like what you're describing on the train uh, last yeah. night without one of your 13 seconds yeah 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 i mean <laughs> yes that's one of my 13 seconds so i guess it's 14 seconds now um, <laughs> i uh and i feel like that's what or the whole of oratory was kind of about is this like um Oratorio for me was like a meditation on the, I was reading Carlo Rovelli's Order of Time and um, for like literally seven seconds, like after a chapter, because I'm not a physicist, but like I, I read it with my limited, um, you know, uh, amateur physicists, hobbyists um, mind. 
And he would say something that would make everything make sense, would make existence make sense theoretically. And everything would sort of feel like it had, there was a reason, there was a how, there was a why, um, there was a beautiful, um, whatever. It felt like a religious epiphany. But the thing is, is like, if you think about it too hard, you lose it. Like, if you think about it too hard, it sort of breaks apart and your logic can't suss it. But it's like those minute, those tiny seconds where it's like, ah, how magnificent. Like, that's what I, that's what I think is true bliss. But I'm a person who's like looking for epiphany, um, uh, hunting for epiphany. Uh, that's, that's just me. And then that with this, I feel like, and then I lose it as, because it that's that's based on the text from Julian, um, Julian of Norwich, who I took a lot of writings from from Turcha. And she that's I mean, she straight, straight up just says it like that of like you can you have an experience that makes you feel like everything happens for a reason or that you have a place on the, in the world. But in the next second, like you have to change the baby's diaper or in the next second, you have to, you know, wash the blood out of the sheets. Yeah. <laughs> um. Can you, and then the next question I had written down, are these seconds of true bliss, spiritual epiphany, which you kind of just answered. But then the next question was, can you find that in musical community? Because one of the things that I feel, and I have more questions about sort of the musical communities that you create for all of your work, but also I feel like audiences that I've talked to who are the like hardcore Heather Christianites, Heather Heads, I don't know what your <laughs> fan base is called. I think come to your work sort of seeking that experience that experience um and sort of what you described you just said searching for epiphany i guess um and do you feel like you can do you personally sort of seek to create that within the performance itself for the artists and for absolutely. the audience absolutely i mean i feel like um I don't know. I feel like I must have been a monk like a, many, many times over in past lives. Um, I I feel like what my practice of writing is always is trying to fix something for myself, like trying I'm trying to bomb a wound in myself um, or I'm trying to answer a question for myself or think about something in a different way that might help me move through for myself. <laughs> and then if the show is going to end up on stage, it means that I've come to a place of peace with it. Um, so I am trying to, with each piece, figure out what the wound was that I was writing from in the first place, and then bring together a community of people who might have a similar wound. It's not going to be the same one, but will help me figure out uh, what kind of process would be holistic for us all to move through these questions so that the making of the thing is just as important as the thing itself. Um, and when the making of the thing is just as important as the thing itself, and all of the individuals that are involved in the thing are like uh, committed to the question and committed to the ritual of asking these questions and not finding an answer, then I think that that translates to an audience and you get a room full of, of people performing it that are like, more more invested than you normally see like in musical theater um because it's personal it's way more personal um because there's no narrative there's room for it to be more personal to them um and that feels especially to a new york city like uh audience who can tend towards cynicism like uh disarming um 
of course I want to try to create that for everybody, but I, uh, I never start out thinking that that's going to be successful. (laughs) One of the things that I always was, have in the past two years been describing oratorio for living things as to people is that the way that singers were directly engaging with audience members through eye contact and just sort of present throughout kind of led me and other people I've talked to to sort of feel comfortable making eye contact with other audience members and holding it in a way that I people New Yorkers certainly don't experience on a day-to-day level and sort of the comfort in the stranger's presence and kind of being taught how to be comfortable and connect with a stranger without sort of looking away or without fear or without sense of like this isn't done um and I feel like that is one of the things that I found most sort of profound about that sort of physical performance experience um that's lovely um and I don't know if you've yeah if you think about sort of what audience members feel about the communion not only with the artist but also with the each other absolutely that's totally that's totally on my mind my one of my biggest soapboxes is that we've all been conditioned to behave a certain way in the theater and so there's a certain kind of protection in that but there's also um that's a barrier to entry for a lot of um for a piece to really like get inside you um so I think a lot about like the first couple moments of the piece. I think a lot about like where the audience is, is placed and how they're interacting with the piece. Um, I think a proscenium is way too safe for this kind of work. Um, I'm always trying to make everybody just a little bit uncomfortable at the beginning so that they can be tuned to figure out how they're going to watch and how they're going to witness and, um, I would imagine like being in one of those audiences at first when you sit down, you're like, Oh hell no. Um, I don't want to be this. <laughs> um, but then you kind of get used to it and you kind of understand, but there's already been a thing that's been opened up in your mind that like, you can't behave the way that you normally do um, or have any expectations of what you're usually expecting when you sit down to watch something like Joseph Campbell said this thing that I like have pasted on my studio wall, which is that the difference between a performance and a ritual is, is a buy-in. Um, it's one simple act, whether or not you believe in it. If you stand up when you're asked to stand or you're, or you sit down where you're told to sit or you hum or you, whatever, it doesn't matter. One thing, one buy-in changes your neurology and you're telling yourself with a physical action that you're willing, um, to go with whatever happens next. Um, and it's real. So I feel like that buy-in for me is exactly what you're talking about. Of I'm willingly sitting down here, even though it's a little too uncomfortable <laughs> to be this close to an audience member. And then the piece can just make it a little bit more okay to be in that scenario, hopefully. And that's a great transition into a question I want to ask you about ritual generally and sort of your relationship personally and artistically to the idea of ritual. Um, for me, I feel like I'm someone who is very like uncomfortable with any ritual that feels repetitive and I'm always sort of seeking variety and, and not sort of re-experiencing. Um, and I think, I mean, as a theater critic, I'm constantly seeing new things and sort of not returning to things, although I am returning 
to the space of Irondale <laughs> on the, for another 9 a.m. Um, but uh, but uh, I'm curious sort of what your, sort of how much you conceive. I think I've read you talking about these works as ritual. So I'd love to just hear you think, yeah. talk more about that. Um, well, I think the first thing to say is that I'm coming at ritual as a non-believer um, and that I... Uh, I think the practice of ritual is trying to get myself on board, um, on board with the miracle of existence, which sometimes I'm successful at doing and sometimes I'm not. Um, so I don't like, you know, when I grew up in the Catholic church, which is so ritual heavy, um, it is so much about repetitive gesture and things that you, uh, you know, it's like, I can, re I can recite the Nicene Creed to you right now, but I could not, like, I don't, I don't think I know what it is, but I know what it is. Like, yeah. we've repeated it so many times. Um, but there's something about, um, especially in the breviary practice of doing the same thing every single day and having it be so difficult. They were, um, they were doing masses eight times a day at three hour intervals They were getting up in the middle of the night to do it. They were like stopping in the middle of meals to do it. They would like stop their work in the field to do it. Um, and it's the same Psalms, it's the same Psalms every time. So it's the contemplation of the same things um, at the same time, every single day. And there's something almost Buddhist about that of like, if you're asking the same question and you're not getting an answer, why are you continuing to ask it? The, the purpose must be to ask the question and acknowledge that you're a different person every single day that you wake on this earth. Um, and that how you ask it uh, is what matters. Um, and that voicing that you care um, to contemplate about these deeper things is the point. Um, so that's, that's how I think about ritual. And also just as a straight up as a performer who has immense control issues and immense performance anxiety uh, as a result of those um, control issues. <laughs> um, ritual is a way for me, which is kind of masochistic, um, to acknowledge that like it's going to be different every single night. There's a danger in my pieces because there's no dialogue. Music is driving the ship like whatever tempo we're at that night like the board's got to follow me like the board has to follow us um it's not repeatable nothing's ever repeatable it's always just shy of possible <laughs> like uh and the acknowledgement that it's never going to happen perfectly or there is no perfect the a success in ritual means you did it from start to finish period whatever that meant that night um yeah. So I'm trying to get on board with that. Um, again, it's a struggle. <laughs> um, I had a question connected to control, I guess, which is sort of, this is a piece where you are the cantor, I think it says in the score, is sort of yeah. um, the terminology you're using, and then you're sort of conductor at moments. You're also sort of present in the space as the composer. Um, and then you're also dancing really well <laughs> um, um and so how do you balance being present in a in a work like this in all those roles with also being part of a musical member of the community on stage or in the process or sort of what do you seek for yourself as a musical leader in a process like this um where it's both sort of 
in you all inside you, but also you're part of some, you're also one piece of something much larger in yeah. performing it. Yeah. Oh Lord. I don't know. It's a, I'm still figuring it out. I mean, that's part of what attracted me to this, the idea of this. Um, oh God, where do I start? So like when I come, when I am starting to write a show, part of like what I'm really thinking about uh, before like any real music gets to the page is how the process can serve the thing that we're trying to say. Um, and within that investigation is what kind of leadership does this piece need? Um, and sometimes that's leadership that needs to come from me. And sometimes that's leadership that I need to give to other people so that they have some sort of separation from me. Um, in this case, it really felt like it wanted to be intimate. Like I wanted to be intimate with those ladies. We wanted to build a community. Um, it was not fake. Uh, we met every Monday and Thursday with, you know, coffee and donuts from six to 9 PM and like learned the score over two months um, with my brilliant music directors who were like in and out, but I was there every time we hung out, we've laughed, we cried, we, you know, <laughs> we all, we're all cycling together right now. <laughs> it's real. Um, so because we've gone through that process with each other, when I'm up there, I don't feel like I'm, really shuffling hats as much as you would think that I would be like, I'm not really consciously going, Oh, I'm thinking about this as composer. I'm now I'm performing this. Now I'm doing that. Now I'm doing that. I really am just like kind of being a whole person. Like I kind of forget that I write it, you know, like I, when I'm, when I'm up there, I forgot that I wrote it, which is necessary in order for me to have fun. Um, because my writer entity is not fun. She's not fun. Um, she she's shy to, she doesn't want to be around people um, but my performer entity is a peacock and she'll come out to play <laughs> um, so I think maybe that helps is uh, you have to relinquish a little bit of the idea that you had in your head at the beginning not a little bit a lot of it um, what you had in the head, your head in the beginning and, and fully embrace what is happening right now right now right now Another thing about the way that audience and artists interact in your works, both in you're you're pronouncing it tercha, uh, tercha. You can tercha. either call it terse or tercha. Okay. Yeah, there. Okay. I've I've heard both. Great. <laughs> um, so in both tercha and in Ordinary for Living Things, I think one of the pieces that is particularly powerful is that be partly because of the way they've been staged, but also in the way that you've written the score, every audience member here is a slightly different score. Um, you're only able to hear certain voices and certain lines of the score really clearly, um, yeah. depending on where you're sitting and what you're paying attention to. Yeah. Um, and I think the the first, there's a moment early on in the piece where I was sitting in the front row and uh, one of the singers walked in between the rows and just hearing a voice from behind you, like completely yeah. sort of shifts your perspective of where, where the focus is and where the music is. And that was kind of um, a really like hooking moment for me. Um, yeah. So I'm curious what that looks like in terms of composing when you're building some, I mean, looking at the score, 
there are certainly lots of pages that have like yeah yeah 10 staffs because it's there's they're they're building so much um how much are you thinking about sort of what the audience will hear versus sort of creating just this sort of layering of texture i mean what's sort of your approach to thinking about the audience's engagement with these layers um well it's different for every show oratorio it was very i was specifically writing in 12-part fugue so i was like there's no it doesn't work unless it's the, the sound is three in 360 degrees. Like your brain just can't deal with that. Um, so that was necessary. And we really didn't track that until I started collaborating with Nick Cortitas, our sound designer, who is freaking brilliant. Um, and Lee, Lee Sunday Evans, also freaking brilliant. Like they, they sort of, we, we all three together sort of sat down and figured out how to, where to throw sound, how to throw it, where, um, while we were in rehearsal with this piece, it was a little bit more on the front end. Cause I, what I wanted to do with this piece specifically was mimic what they do in, um, in the actual, or what they did in the original medieval breviary masses, which there, there are two choirs that face each other. Um, so there's a left choir and a right choir. And this, this, this choir does a call and this choir does a response, um, depending on where you are in the Psalms. So a lot of the score I wrote with like this left choir, right choir sensibility in mind. Um, the self-mixing of it, especially because we, we're not able to do a whole lot of trickery in Irondale. Irondale is a really acoustically difficult space that we are now making friends with. Um, so th while there was a lot of sophisticated invisible tech that went into oratorio, there was no sophisticated tech um, at Irondale. Like Nick had to make magic with like those those mi wired mics on on stands um yeah. <laughs> which is nuts um so but in both cases there's like it's absolutely like i'm embracing the sensibility of when like uh i'm into vocal fugue just really into it um <laughs> i don't know anybody else who's doing lyricized vocal fugue um it feels uh really naughty to do it um, because it's, you know, you're, you're admitting that not everybody's going to catch everything. Um, but oratory was sort of a proof of concept. I was like, but can we get to people just like letting go and like letting it happen? And like, is that fulfilling? Um, and I think that answer was yes. So now I'm leaning, leaning more, leaning different, yeah. um, into that idea. I think connected to that, a question is, I had a question about the audience relationship to your text, not only from the perspective of, can they literally hear <laughs> all the text, yeah, but yeah. also as they're hearing the text, can they sort of digest all the text? Um, and here you have the text projected in order for living things you had like physical liberty. Um, yeah. And I love your poetry and it's been really cool to sort of get to look at it more deeply seeing looking at the score after the fact but i definitely don't process every line or certainly yeah. the layers of lines in the moment and it actually feels similar to the choral experience of uh letting things grab you and sort of responding yeah. to what you need to respond to in that moment and there are certainly like lines of text that stuck with me and then 
other lines that I just didn't have time to sort of wrap my brain really? around yeah. in the moment. Um, and I would say that certainly I think your text tends to be on the on the side of sort of po poetry that requires sort of deeper study to sort of uh, get inside of, but also has this sort of in the moment sort of both the sound of it being sung is really yeah, yeah. effective uh, just orally, um, but also sort of these lines that kind of jump out as images. So I guess, how do you think about sort of what the audience's relationship to your text will be? Do you, is your dream audience member one who sort of like gets every line in the moment? No, or... no, no, no. I like, I actually, um, I, I feel like I've, I've just accepted that I'm a person who is trying to put every single idea that she's ever had and every piece that she's ever <laughs> um this is kind of like I had an aha moment um uh there was a review that Jesse Green wrote um for the New York Times about this piece I made over the pandemic called I'm sending you the sacred face and he said something really smart that taught me about myself he was like he said that my lyrics are great, but they go so quickly that you tend to you tend to miss them unless you turn on the closed captioning. And he was glad he turned on the closed captioning because then he could follow everything. And I was like, ah, I see. OK, because I was always frustrated that people were like, you're so, you know, gnomic and, you know, poetic and opaque and all of this. So I want to give everybody the keys to the car. Right. I want to give everybody the keys to the car. And at least to have them know that it is available and um, possible for them to engage with the work as deeply as they wish to. I know not, not everybody wants to do that. And I by no means mean to be prescriptive about it, but I do know that everybody processes music differently. And there are specifically like two groups of people. There's those of us who pr process music and lyrics at once in the brain like you can hear a piece of music and understand the lyric. And there are those of us like my father who cannot hear language when music is happening. So he needs to read my lyrics after the show is done. Um, and so I wanna like hold up both of those brains. Both of those are valid experiences. Um, yeah, I don't, there is no dream audience member. I feel like in, in my pieces, what I'm really trying to get at is like writing Rorschachs of like wherever you're at today and how you meet the work is what you hear. Like you hear what you need to hear. There's enough in it. <laughs> <laughs> to where yeah <laughs> you'll find something hopefully that resonates with you um uh and i feel like having the text um available whenever you want to engage with it is uh is is just important to me um just in case there are people who want to like study further or yeah. that want to look further about what it is they just saw i love that one question though that brings up you're saying that you are someone who puts every thought you've ever had into every piece. I was, I, in thinking about Turcha, I was reminded of something that my choral conductor would say to us in my college choir um, when we would sort of have sort of like a unisat onset of sound. He'd say, imagine that the sound is already there and is always ongoing. You're just entering it. Yeah. Um, and I kind of feel in thinking about your work, and it's interesting to hear you say that because it kind of, sort of answers the question that I'm asking um, is that it kind of feels like we're 
when we step into a Heather Christian piece, we're sort of entering thoughts and music that's sort of ongoing. And there is this sort of connect, even if the structure of your pieces and the themes of your pieces may be different, um, that we're sort of entering, we're sort of seeing a part of like a vaster ocean of Heather Christian ideas and and sort of musical connections. Um, and And do you feel that you're sort of like cordoning off parts of your brain when you create a piece versus just sort of um, I don't know if that makes sense. Sometimes. Not not cordoning in a negative way, but in a, like, are you sort of partitioning parts of your creativity? A little bit, a yes. Piece? Like, I mean, I certainly, because I consider what I do adaptation, even though it's more akin to cannibalization than it is adaptation. Um, and I feel like I like doing that and starting from source text or source structure because it offers me some kind of parameter to throw the kitchen sink at. I rarely will limit myself. I will rarely limit my musical imagination. Um, and I think that that's probably just a taste thing. Like I am a musical omnivore. And so like my playlists always have like bossa nova and electronica and like ambient and also pop like lids everywhere. Yeah. And I feel like that's how to keep my attention, but also how to um, use music metabolically in a way that you don't traditionally hear in like musical settings. Like I'm used to going to musicals and hearing one genre, um, or I'm used to going to musicals and honestly getting musically bored. Um, not to be a bitch, but <laughs> um, so I don't limit my musical imagination usually unless I'm like uh, trying to throw into the salad bowl. Uh, a musical idea that I'm like riffing on that's there because of some historical reason or some, you know, academic reason like organum in this, in this particular, in the Turgia. Right. Um, uh, but certainly I'm limiting myself as, or I'm trying to steer my perspective and steer or convince myself of, of a certain perspective or enter this sounds so artsy fartsy I'm sorry but like, <laughs> like I'm trying to like enter thinking rooms like the, there are different rooms of thought um that each show has that like each of those rooms has a has a different kind of wallpaper and each of those rooms like feels different and there's like a different snack um so I'm definitely like trying to get into those rooms while I'm writing those specific pieces and because I work on so many pieces at once um like that's very necessary um, in order to keep them kind of separate. Um, and the good news is, is like, I don't think any one person lives and dies by one, um, point of view for the entirety of their lives. Um, I'm changing constantly. Um, and my thinking on these big topics changes constantly. So, uh, Sometimes I'm setting up my own limitations and that like I've disproven the point that I made eight years ago. <laughs> so. Can you talk a little bit more about sort of the thinking room that this piece is in? I know we've talked kind of broadly about what the piece is and how it lives in the space, but I'd love um, to just hear you talk a little bit more about sort of where it fits into the broader, I've heard you describe it as the octopus of yeah. of these breviaries that you're creating. Um, and sort of what you were and and we haven't really talked about 
the divine femininity, which is the lens yeah. through which you're writing all of this. So if you just want to kind of give yeah. the give the the overview. Okay. Yeah. So um in there's there's eight there's eight masters. There's traditionally seven, but um one of them is uh one of them is I'm doing eight. That makes more sense with octopus then. I was like, is there, yeah. what happened to the, the eight? Hey, I'm, I'm doing eight. Yeah. Um, so the, I knew that I wanted to do this piece and I wanted to do it in all different mediums. Um, the reason that I wanted to do it is because I wanted to adapt these ancient texts that have been translated and retranslated and retranslated and pushed and pulled by churches who were more interested in governance than they were in spirituality um, to serve a very specific purpose. Um, I wanted to like adapt those texts, go back to the original languages that they, they took the texts from, um, and, uh, try and find utility in them for a modern people. Um, the first one was a podcast. It was about words and work. Um, the way that I'm sort of sussing out what these masses are about is by what the Psalms are suggesting to me that they are about. And then some of the masses, uh, it's very prescriptive. Like the, when you read about the masses, it's just like, this one is about X. The one, the church is supposed to be about Pentecost. This is about the Holy Spirit. In the Catholic church, the idea of the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity. This, the, the, the idea of God as the father, God as the son, and God as the Holy Spirit. Um, which to me is like a tasting menu that Catholicism offers of like, can you get behind like the, you know, the man with the beard in the clouds? Great. That's fine also or can you get behind the martyr who died for your sins is that your is that your god okay no what about the little piece of god that lives in each of us um that's the holy spirit um which is uh, a really like hindu idea um has a lot of uh correlations with a lot of other um religions that i really dig um anyway uh in writing about the holy spirit and finding people who are writing about the holy spirit i came across um several texts in ancient Greek and in Hebrew that had that the words that they used to refer to the Holy Spirit have, have feminine pronouns. And so I had a little light bulb going in my head and I was like, I wonder if this is where the idea of the divine feminine went because um, specifically the Catholic church and the early Christianity took a bunch of pagan ideas and they tried to, uh, digest them through a lens of Christianity so they could convert as many pagans as possible. So a lot of the pagan rituals, a lot of pagan holidays, a lot of the pagan ideas are alive in um, Catholicism and in Christianity. Um, and the one that seems suspiciously absent is the, is the goddess. Um, they keep saying that the way, the, where they put it was uh, the blessed Virgin was Mary, the mother of Jesus, but she's a virgin. Um, she is kind of powerless. She was a vessel. Um, she was like sinless, blameless, tame. Um, she's everything that like modern society, and by modern, I mean, uh, this 2000 year old society, <laughs> um, wanted to say that women were, um, but the goddess and goddess culture is all about an alignment with nature. It's all about wildness. It's about fecundity, um, <clears throat> wild creativity, making something out of nothing, um, a different kind of wisdom that is not linear, um, poetic wisdom. Uh, so uh, I was like, I bet 
what if I just looked like just said that I'm right and um I tried to convince <laughs> myself that part of God was feminine um what if I tried to convince myself that uh creation is female what does that world look like and can we imagine a world for an hour where a matrilineal line instead of a patrilineal one um made a civilization like what would that feel like um and we didn't spend too much time in that line of thinking but uh in building the community we certainly spent a lot of time there yeah (laughs) (laughs) um and then like in that research of like okay divine femininity what does that actually mean um i was looking back at indigenous creation mythology i was looking at um a bunch of like early like christian mystics um and gnostics um, and found these three primary women whose writings I was pulling from, which is Hildegard von Bingen, um, who is a saint. Uh, I think she's from the 11th century, um, maybe earlier. I forget. My my brain is scrambled and now I have no language. Um, and she's our first female composer. She uh, had prophetic visionary migraine visions and made paintings. She was an herbalist. She was deeply brilliant um and uh poetic and had an incredibly strange worldview that's celebrated which is great so there's a lot of hildegard in part one julian of norwich who had a feminine vision of the christ uh, on her deathbed where a version of jesus came to her and like helped her take care of her stinky filthy medieval household um and she was like that's the god that i want in my corner i want the god that will like help me like take the scales off the herring and like wring out the filthy laundry and you know take care of me when i'm shitting myself on my sick bed and she spent the rest of her life learning how to read and write so she could write her own story um after a monk transcribed it and did it wrong um, and then Robin Wall Kimmerer, who is still with us and would probably roll her eyes at me if I called her a mystic, but I'm just doing, <laughs> she wrote a book called Braiding Sweetgrass. Um, Robin Wall Kimmerer is a Haudenosaunee elder and, um, botanist, uh, and has written these incredible, um, books on a sensibility of living eye level with nature. Um, she writes about something called a gift economy, about giving before receiving, in terms of dealing with people, in terms of dealing with the earth, um, she kind of ripped my worldview apart. Um, so she's a lot in this. Um, when we talk about generosity and mercy, um, my God, where was I even going with this? Um, so that's that's the thing. So that's divine femininity and Turcha, and this is how this lives. At the beginning, when I started writing it, I was like, "It's a pancake breakfast." So this is where we got to. <laughs> Um, which is kind of a pre-church meeting is what we kind of wanted to make it feel like. Um, and this is the first mass in the breviary cycle that um, the, the monks and nuns would come together in community. The prime was always done in solo contemplation. The third mass is called The Sext. It's going to be a short film or a film theater hybrid. The fourth is called The Nun. It's about abandonment by God. The Sext is about materialism. The f- next is abandonment by God. I think that's a VR experience or a like... I think like a a very sophisticated performance for an audience of one. Um, And then there's a Vespers about war. There's Compline about Holy space. There is a Matins about all of human history. And then there's a Louds about rebirth. Um, And that's a dance piece, rock concert, concerto, and pop-up concert in a train station. 
Wow. Yeah. <laughs> What's the, do you have a sort of sense of timeline for? Not really. <laughs> I mean, I have, so Sex and None are done. Um, those are both written and in the can and I'm just waiting for somebody to show up and be like, hi, can we do it? Yeah. Um, but these are hard sells because it's religious material. So it's been, you know, the Turcha has been done since 2019. So it's, uh, it takes a while for me to find somebody who believes in the project or believes in me enough to walk down these crazy roads. And are you, how much of your text is completed when you start? It seems like <clears throat> you're doing a lot of text work before you're adding music. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, I have the way, I mean, I have completed librettos before I sit down at a piano. Um, however, the writing the music process is its own editing pass um, and things change wildly. Um, I kind of know when a libretto is ripe, you know, um, or at least there's enough there to where I feel like I could start to try and figure out how it wants to sing. Um, but then inevitably, once once we start getting music onto the page, things start flying yeah. out the window. Can, when you're when you're actually in the process of writing text, can you separate that from the musical? Like, oh, are you... yeah. necessary, totally necessary. I like keep my composer and my librettist in different boxes on the opposite ends of the room. <laughs> I like really make it my librettist's job to like throw the composer for like a loop to like try and be like scan that bitch just try <laughs> just try um and it's my composer's job to uh to fix um with the librettist through at her in her inanity um that's pretty cool because i feel like it to me or in my experience i feel like it's difficult to sort of not sort of set to music as you go um or yeah. sort of hear do you have a sense of sort of even like tempo rhythm. or I mean yeah yeah, rhythm, yeah. I, I mean I usually understand like at least what meter we're putting things in yeah um which leads me to a, a quick but necessary question which is if you were a time signature what time signature would you be and why five all day that's the correct answer yeah um do you what's your what's your why um, because it's salty and sweet. <laughs> it feels like one always feels really good. And like the beginning feels really good. And the ending always feels a little like anxious and crazy. Um, and it happens over and over and over and over and over again. Is that like a two plus three or a three plus two? Or does it not matter? Uh, I don't think it matters. Okay. I think d different years are... Yeah. <laughs> I think I've solidly been in five for the last decades. <laughs> <laughs> um, since you talked about sort of writing many pieces at once, I wanted to, I know we're getting towards the end of our time, but I wanted to ask you briefly about Wrinkle in Time, um, yeah. which I got to see in development over the summer. Um, how does working on a piece like that, which does have a sort of imposed structure of a different kind, mm -hmm. um, feed into a piece like this and vice versa like what are you learning from that experience oh it's great I mean I I don't uh eschew narrative because I don't think it's possible I I just like eschew narrative because I'm not interested in it usually um so I 
what I have been given with Wrinkle is so much freedom to use songs as not just um, vehicles for a plot, um, but microscopes into internal experience of the characters and internal experiences of the worlds. Like that's what I'm really jazzed by is especially during the orchestration process in act two, being able to like really landscape paint with music, um, these different planets that we're hopping onto, um, which is exciting to me. Um, but it's been great like working with Lauren and working with Lee who are mostly in charge of keeping the skeleton of the plot intact. So I don't have to, cause I don't want to. Um, <laughs> and also I'm no good with that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been very, very uh, fertile and a really happy collaborative um, arrangement. And I, I think all of my time spent in writing these wackadoodle projects where plot has nothing to do with anything and character has nothing to do with anything actually makes me investigate how to write these characters as real people um, and write them authentically and like not just like be writing I want songs for the, for the sake of writing I want songs. Um, you know, I don't think that the medium of, of straightforward musical theater that fits in that box is dead, but I feel like it is ill um and that we're we're not trying new stuff and so it has been like illuminating to figure out which of those tropes and which of those devices still have legs and can be um and we can dance in a different way on them you know um i'm not throwing the baby out with bathwater yeah and i yeah i mean i definitely have felt recently in recent years and months that so much of music new musical theater writing are sometimes telling strange stories but in really not strange ways and yeah. and sort of finding weird structure and and sort of disarming audiences is something that isn't getting done which is probably partly like commercial sphere of yeah. what will sell but it's so exciting for someone with your willingness to go to strange willingness, <laughs> willingness to go to strange musical places um taking on a sort of narrative musical um yeah. and i'm so excited to see what comes of that um yeah. another maybe two more quick questions um i saw uh one of the 9 a.m performances of turcha we'll be going to another in two yeah. saturdays um because I mean, I wanted to go back because the way that the sunlight <laughs> interacted with the I don't know oh if you God. knew that was happening. But for those listeners who have not seen it or will be seeing it, um, I guess the spoiler is that if you come at 9 a.m., the sunlight through the window is like that, like truly like a spiritual. That was insane. Moment. Um, I guess if you just talk about what those 9 a.m. I saw you had posted on instagram i think like the 9 a.m performance is, that's the one that's the, the one. one it's the one yeah well the thing was is we ran out of time and we didn't we weren't able to tech it at nine so we had absolutely no idea what was going to happen um the fact that the sun the sun threw a spotlight on me for like i kid you not 25 minutes i thought i was losing my mind a little bit <laughs> is this actually happening like it was miraculous it was miraculous and you could feel like everybody in the room 
just sort of go like feel that it was also miraculous and of course that like because we're so close to you like that has a feedback loop yeah um we also like I walked into that morning like I'm not gonna sleep before the 9 a.m performances we have a seven o'clock show on Fridays and then we have a 9 a.m on on Saturday morning and then 3 p.m on Saturday so I'm a ball of anxiety I don't sleep that night I come into the 9 a.m show I fully expected that show to be garbage fully expected to just like croak my way through like nobody's in good voice at nine um it rocked it was so crazy it was so crazy that's my that's been my favorite show that show you saw has been my favorite show so far I'm so glad it was really extraordinary um and then I guess my last question is you've talked a lot about sort of the collaborative process of building this um, and it's been cool looking at the score and seeing how many names of individual people are in sort of baked into the score and sort of people bringing their individual talent. So I wanted to end by asking you if you could highlight sort of one or two moments in the show that exist because you found something or someone brought something extraordinary to the mm-hmm. process um, besides you that you might oh, not yeah. have imagined would would be there, or would go in that direction. Oh, yeah. Um, this, there's a, there's a solo instrumental in petition, which is like, which happens in the third half of the show where there's dual, there's dueling sax solos between my percussionist, Terry, who I didn't realize until we got into the room, played soprano sax. And one of my chorus members, Jessica, who I can't believe she signed up to sing in our choir because she's one of the most astonishing musicians that I've ever met in my life. I used to sing with Taylor Mack with her playing behind me, um, so they do this sort of like dueling she jessica plays baritone and terry plays soprano sax and it's my favorite part of the show like and they've been friends for like 25 years and you can like really hear that friendship and like that love in those eight bars like it's i think that that's that's a really special thing and that's not didn't hear sax on the score at all we got sax everywhere um (laughs) you know you got to use what's there yeah um, and in this case, it was like a profound addition, I think. Um, amazing. Well, I think it speaks to sort of the community that's built by your pieces, both in the ensemble and in the audience. So just want to thank you so much for taking the time to join the podcast and for these 57 minutes of bliss. Or, <laughs> <laughs> um, and for all the extraordinary work you have created and will create. So Aww. thank you so much. Thank you. Gosh, it's so wonderful to meet you and talk to you. Have a wonderful day. That was Heather Christian, the creator of Tricha, a practical breviary, running at the Prototype Festival, produced by Here at the Space at Irondale through February 4th. You can go to prototypefestival.org to find tickets. I highly recommend those 9 a.m. performances with the sunlight streaming through. And if you enjoyed what you heard today on the podcast, please follow us at the present stage. And I hope that you will also take the time to share this episode with a friend, spread the gospel of Heather Christian, uh, and keep enjoying all the theater there is to offer throughout New York. We'll have lots more episodes in the weeks to come with incredible playwrights, composers, lyricists, librettists, all that good stuff here on the present stage. Take care.